Hello, it's episode 29 of Tegan Goes Vegan. I'm your host, Tegan Karuna. First of all, I wanted to thank everybody who has been rating and reviewing the, the show on iTunes. Um, in particular, I want to say thanks to Everfar, who actually rated it a few weeks ago, but I forgot to mention it. And also Phoenix Bound, who left a really kind note where they mention that uh, we talk about Philly a lot on this show, uh, <laughs> which I know we do. It's just there's a lot of cool stuff. So if you're ever in the Philly area, let me know. I'll give you some tips about where to go, some hot tips for vegan food. So um, yeah, thank you guys so much for your really kind feedback. I appreciate it. Um, if you haven't yet had a chance to go onto iTunes and rate or review the show, that'd be awesome. There's always a need for good vegan content out there, and I hope that that's what I'm able to provide for you by talking to lots of different people, lots of different viewpoints, all different kinds of perspectives. Hopefully it's helping you learn more. I'm definitely learning a ton. I'm sure if I went back to some of my older shows, I would be surprised at the things I was saying then, and I'm sure when I go back at these shows in six months, I'll be surprised at what I'm saying now. Life is about evolution, right? We're all just trying to be better than we were yesterday. So speaking of people who are trying to make today and tomorrow better than yesterday, this week's interview is with Bruce Friedrich. He is the executive director at the Good Food Institute, which he will go into a lot of detail explaining what that is. But basically, they are a nonprofit that is working towards increasing the availability of plant-based food and what they call clean meat, or I guess clean dairy products and eggs as well. And what, what they mean by clean is that it is all cultured. It's made in a lab. Basically, they're trying to make animal agriculture obsolete, which is amazing. It's so cool. I, I'm like all on board with that. Before we even get to the Good Food Institute stuff, Bruce and I talk about a ton of other things. He is Catholic and we talk a lot about how being vegan was an extension of his, or becoming vegan was an extension of his Catholic faith. Then we talk about his work at PETA, where he was for a long time and moved up in the ranks there and, and has a lot of experience and kind of spoke to what it was like working for PETA. And then he also worked at Farm Sanctuary, which I know a lot of us really hold up as an excellent example of advocacy and action all rolled up into one. So Bruce's career has really been shaped by some of those big mainstream forces, and now he's putting his time and effort into what he sees as the future of our food system. And so talking to Bruce was really great. I had a wonderful time learning from him and asking him questions about the movement and his perspective based on his personal experiences. And so I hope that you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking to him. And here he is, Bruce Friedrich. How long ago did you become vegan? Um, I adopted a vegan diet in 1987. And what was the, did, was there an inciting incident or was it like a kind of a slow build of learning new things or, you know, like what was the process like for you? Well, I showed up at college. I went to a small liberal arts school in Iowa called Grinnell College. And I showed up and I joined an organization called Poverty Action Now, which was focused on alleviating global poverty and also volunteering at a Catholic worker soup kitchen in Des Moines, Iowa. 
And I joined another organization called the Latin American Support Organization, which was focused on raising awareness with regard to U.S. policy in Central and South America. And the leaders of both of those organizations, even all the way back in 1987, they were vegan. And they were vegan for global poverty relief reasons and basic waste of resource reasons. And one of the uh, leaders of those groups gave me a book called Diet for a Small Planet. And I read Diet for a Small Planet before classes even started. So this was my first year of college. And it turned me vegan. Just the, the basic argument that every time we're eating animal products, we're wasting vast quantities of food because most of what you feed to a chicken or a pig or a cow, most of the calories that you put into that animal, the animal expends simply existing. So it's extraordinarily wasteful to funnel all of those crops through animals, and it directly contributes uh, to global poverty. So that that was the thing that did it for me um, 20, almost 29 years ago now. And so you, ju- you just read this book and it resonated with you so much. And then that was it. It was like an overnight thing. Well, it wasn't quite overnight. Um, I read the book and I went vegetarian except low, I mean, I'm sorry, I went vegan except low fat cottage cheese because <laughs> okay. back, back in 1987, uh, diet for a small planet still had this concept of protein complementing which the author, Francis Moore LePay, has since disavowed. But I read the book, and I grew up in Oklahoma, and I had probably not had a lot of full meals that were even vegetarian um, by 1987. So I was completely convinced of the argument, but I also thought that I was going to have to figure out protein complementing in order to go completely vegan. So I read some articles by Victoria Moran in Animal's Agenda, a magazine um, that looked at animal issues. And Victoria Moran wrote about the myth of protein complementing, debunked the idea that we need to be oh so careful. Um, So a couple months after I went vegan except low-fat cottage cheese, I was delighted to be able to drop the low-fat cottage cheese and go completely vegan. And just for curiosity's sake, why was it cottage cheese that was the th- one thing that you hold on to? That doesn't strike me as a particularly fun food to hang well, on to for that protein. <laughs> well, as a, I mean, I you know, I, I imagine there was a, there were a couple of reasons. The first is um, that on a protein per calorie basis, low fat cottage cheese does quite well, and then probably I also didn't want to um, choose something. Where I could, you know, where I was getting pleasure from something that I found to be so ethically problematic. So, uh, you know, if if uh, if I had chosen something like soft serve ice cream or chocolate, <laughs> um, you know, the the protein wouldn't have been as as high, and I would have enjoyed it. So, if I was going to do something, you know, unethical for my own health, at least I was going to hate it. So, uh, <laughs> I uh, I think I was one of the happier people to be able to go completely vegan when I was able to drop low fat cottage cheese, which was uh, is a pretty revolting food. <laughs> <if you don't. laughs> That's I was gonna say even even back when I ate dairy, I avoided cottage cheese like 
in all of its forms. So I was just so surprised. Most people are like, oh, it was, you know, I just waited until I, I mean, I guess for people who aren't sticking with one kind of animal product for the, you know, the mythological protein myth, um, you know, they're not thinking about like, what is the most efficient way for me to get this protein? They're like holding on to these foods for other reasons. So they don't, low fat cottage cheese is not often the last food that people cut out of their diet. Yeah, I've talked to an awful lot of vegans, and I think I'm I'm the only one I've come across. And and I think it's I think it's probably true that I had never had low fat cottage cheese until I went vegan, except for low fat cottage cheese. But it was uh, it was there available um, at Grinnell College every lunch and dinner. There was low fat cottage cheese on the salad bar, and uh, I mean I could have I could have gone with skim milk or something, I suppose. But I think I liked skim milk, and so I, I did want to go for something that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that that's what I settled on. So you really had the experience that I think is, is the the kind of like idealized vegan experience of like leaving your parents home and going away to college and learning something new and then radically changing your life. Is that is that what it felt like, or did was it did it just seem so natural? Well, I mean, it, it seemed pretty natural. It, this was this was a period in my life when I was attempting to model myself on Jesus. Hmm. And so I was very downwardly mobile. Um, I was really sort of racked with guilt over my affluence relative to what was happening in so much of the world. And I, I learned about global poverty and the extent of global poverty when I was 12 or 13 years old. And it was a a significant motivating factor in my life from that point forward. So when I read Diet for a Small Planet and it said, you know, I I was attempting to walk gently on the earth, as they say. And uh, so when I read Diet for a Small Planet and I realized that the most efficient meat requires nine calories, you know, chicken requires nine calories in to get one calorie back out. So roughly 90% of what is fed to an animal is the animal burns up existing. It goes into feathers or blood or bone or something that we don't eat. When I realized the, the extent of the wastefulness and the pollution and the fact that as the World Watch Institute has pointed out, we are living in a global marketplace wherein you know, this demand for corn and soy and other crops for feed, I mean, it does lead to the destruction of the Amazon rainforest. It does throw subsistence farmers off their farms and into destitution in cities. It does drive up the price of land and crops so that people who you know, otherwise might have been able to buy food are unable to buy food. It was a, a real aha experience for me. And I guess it felt like a natural progression. You learn something that has ethical implications and you change your life on the basis of this new information. Uh, felt, uh, felt pretty normal for me. And you, you mentioned that you were part of um, a Catholic group on campus. Um, are you or were you Catholic? Um, I am Catholic. Okay, yes. you are Catholic. Um, did you find at that time, and then maybe looking more towards the present, like how is veganism seen 
in in Catholic circles, not not necessarily the church itself, but within like this uh, like within your social groups. Does anybody is that, are, are people into it? Do they think that it's kind of strange? Like because there, I mean, there is like particular Catholic culture as well. It's not just a religion. So, you know, I'm, I have I have a lot of Catholic family. So <laughs> I'm just curious what your experience has been there. Uh, my experience has been that it's pretty similar to the rest of society, although among progressive Catholics, there is um, huge acceptance. Like there is uh, one of the things about Catholicism that I think is similar to Judaism and Islam and Hindu and Buddhism, similar to a lot of religions, but dissimilar from the most of the Protestant religions is the focus on works. So, you know, the book of James, faith without works is dead. There is a sense that we should be aligning our actions with our ethics. And then pretty much everybody agrees that cruelty to animals is not just unethical, but it's, you know, unchristian, unCatholic, unBuddhist, unHindu, you know, it violates religious precepts, which call for mercy, I imagine, across all religions. And similarly, religions talk about welcoming the stranger. In Christianity, there's who is my neighbor, Lord. You know, it's the Samaritan. It's the other. Um, Matthew 25 talks about the works of mercy, feeding the hungry, clothing the homeless, visiting the sick and imprisoned. Like There is this idea that we should be doing things for the global poor, treating the environment well, treating animals well. And once you realize what happens, what the external costs are, to put it in economic terms, of animal agriculture, uh, it makes a tremendous amount of sense to withdraw our support from that. And I think that certainly progressive Catholics get it extraordinarily well, and other Catholics get it probably slightly better than most other people in society, maybe about the same. That's really interesting to me because, so I um, studied religion in college and I I was very active in the Jewish community um, up until a few years ago. And to me, the, the clear line between the ethics that I learned growing up and my vegan ethics now, it's just so clearly connected to me. And um, in my formal study of Christianity, my understanding was always that it seemed very clear to me that particularly animals were an important part of the, the compassionate lifestyle that was being taught biblically. And, and, you know, I'm not a biblical scholar or anything, so I don't want to oversell myself or anything, but you know, it, it did seem like progressive people of faith, it, it makes a lot of sense to me that there is more interest and acceptance of vegan diets within that group of people because they do have a, like a different idea of social justice than I think, you know, a more secular idea of social justice might have, you know, just like the framework is different. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, it certainly has that has been my experience as somebody you know who comes from 
uh, progressive faith. I, I don't know if you've come across it, but there's a, a very exciting initiative that has been launched by Farm Forward. Farm Forward is the organization that um, Jonathan Saffron for is intimately connected to. And they've recent, recently launched something called the Jewish Initiative for Animals hmm. that for, uh, and it, it's not, uh, it's not an overtly progressive Jewish group. It's in fact probably, uh, more conservative than progressive, but they're doing, um, a tremendous amount of really good stuff, um, through the Jewish Initiative for Animals. And, you know, people can find out about it at farmforward.com. That's very interesting. I'm going to look into that. Um, it's, yeah, I definitely want to explore that a little bit more. I'm interested in the, uh, more conservative side being the ones kind of driving that. Um, but that's fascinating. So you became vegan in early on in college before classes even started or almost vegan and then dropped the cottage cheese. Um, and then what happened? Well, I, uh, came to Washington, D.C. for six years and ran a homeless shelter and soup kitchen in Washington, D.C. And while I was here, uh, so I'd been vegan for some years for environmental reasons and reasons having to do with alleviating global poverty. And I came across a book called Christianity and the Rights of Animals by an Anglican theologian and professor of religion at Oxford University, Andrew Lindsay. The book has been sort of uh, an updated version of it. Um, It's called Animal Theology, and he makes a liberation theology case for animals. And that really deeply moved me. Uh, Lindsay's argument, I mean, he puts it into a faith context, but I think it applies to anybody who's attempting to lead a life of integrity. Um, and uh, you know, distilled, Lindsay's argument basically is that other animals are made of flesh and blood and bone, just like we are. They have the same five physiological senses that we do, they feel pain in the same way and to the same degree. And what's happening to them, you know, in a faith context, you know, makes a mockery of God. But for people who are not religious, you know, it is a grave ethical injustice what's happening to, you know, literally billions of animals, you know, just in the U.S. who are treated in ways, you know, for dinner plates, treated in ways that would warrant felony cruelty to animals charges in all 50 states if these were protected animals like dogs or cats rather than unprotected animals like chickens and pigs and other animals. And it is morally horrific uh, what's happening to these animals because they happen not to be human beings. And um, that argument had a huge impact on me. And um, I read more books and talked to a lot of people. And one of my closest friends in the uh, faith-based, you know, homeless advocacy and peace community, uh, Betsy Swart, is also really good friends with Ingrid Newkirk, um, who is the president and founder of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And uh, 
she, you know, called Ingrid and pressured me and put us together. And, uh, she thought we would hit it off. You know, we're both, we both have, uh, very irreverent personalities and type A, uh, attitudes toward work. And, uh, so in 1996, I, I went to work, uh, for Ingrid at PETA and, uh, was there for 15 years and then you know, moved to Farm Sanctuary and then, uh, was at Farm Sanctuary for five years and then have been, uh, for the last, uh, little less than a year running a new initiative called the Good Food Institute, um, and another initiative called New Crop Capital. And so what did you do at PETA? I was hired in 1996 to work on vegetarian and anti-animal experimentation campaigns. So I was a campaign coordinator. Um, after a few years, I was made uh, director of farm animal and vegan campaigns um, and then vice president for all campaigns, which is what I was for about the last uh, decade or so that I was at PETA. And so what what did that work mean, particularly that the last decade that you were there? What what was your role? Like, what did you actually do with the campaigns? Like, did you conceptualize them or did you, you know, like how much, like, I guess I don't know very much about, you know, PETA's structure or anything like that. Like, what what was your, what did you do on a daily basis there? Well, I had um, five direct reports uh, who were, you know, the directors and managers in terms of farm animal campaigns, vegan campaigns, um, entertainment, animal experimentation, and skins, which is fur, leather, wool, um, a bit of silk advocacy. Um, so it was anywhere from, you know, I mean, I guess it, it sort of grew and grew. And um, at one point I had about, you know, five direct reports and then 50 people total. And when you have... 50 people total under you. Um, it's an awful lot of meetings and document review. And, and I was sort of the final set of eyes for production of leaflets and lots of meetings to conceptualize and fine tune campaigns. Um, an awful lot of interviews and speaking engagements um, and I think probably sort of everything that you would expect from somebody um, in senior management at PETA working on all of their grassroots, grassroots outreach efforts. So everything from, you know, tweaking leaflets and sites to figuring out um, what demonstrations should look like to um, talking with the media and did a lot of blogging for the Huffington Post um, when the Huffington Post was was very uh, fresh and new. So they were um, pushing our stuff out on the homepage. They, were, they weren't quite as uh, big as they are now. And how did you find, you know, it, this was your, it sounds like this was your first full-time animal activism job. Um, how did you find that it was similar or how did it compare to running the homeless shelter in terms of like your own personal values and fulfillment? They were just, they were radically different. Um, I mean, running the homeless shelter in the soup kitchen under the auspices of the Catholic worker. And I don't know how much your 
listeners will know about Dorothy Day and the Catholic worker. But uh, the idea of the Catholic worker is that people in the intentional community of the Catholic worker house, and I think there are about 130 of these, 130 Catholic worker houses now, and Dorothy Day is on the short list for canonization. When Pope Francis gave his speech to Congress, um, he invoked Dorothy Day Martin Luther King Jr. and Thomas Merton, I believe, as the sort of three exemplars of leading a Christ-like life. And the Catholic worker is focused on doing the works of mercy, and the people who are doing them live in voluntary poverty, which means um, at the Catholic worker, we, you know, we have, we stayed at the shelter and uh, we did dumpster diving and, um, it was oftentimes the case that we were very close to having uh, our electricity turned off or our water turned off or whatever, and I would end up having to you know, call around to local parishes. You know, it was never – we weren't really close to that because we knew that local parishes would give us the money that we needed to pay the bills. But you know, it was oftentimes the case that we had this sort of turn-off notice and had to call you know, St. Aloysius um, – or another parish in order to, to pay the bills. And going from that to a place where the campaigns department is extraordinarily well run, the people at PETA work incredibly hard and are smart, competent, savvy people. And when I first started at PETA, it was really sort of, uh, it was surprising to me that I could make unlimited long distance calls to <laughs> organize, you know, demonstrations. And I didn't have to, if I wanted to go make a, you know, a thousand leaflets to go pass out in front of the White House, I just went and made the thousand leaflets to pass it, pass out in front of the White House. At the Catholic Worker, we also did a lot of, um, we organized a lot of progressive demonstrations and, it was oftentimes the case that I would have to, you know, go down to our parish, St. Aloysius, and um, ask Father Anderson for money to go to the Kinkas to make the leaflets. So it was definitely sort of a, a different way of uh, thinking about those sorts of things. And how'd that feel for you? Was that a, like a culture shock, or did you just dive right in and you were like, oh, this is what it's like to have an or- to work at an organization that has money. This is great. It was, yeah, no, it was definitely, uh, I definitely liked it. Um, on the one hand, there, there is a sense at the Catholic worker that the process is a part of the work. So, you know, there's this sort of Buddhist sensibility, um, wherein the idea of, of having to go to that extra trouble to keep the lights on or to pay the water bill or to, you know, buy a birthday cake for one of our guests, um, or to print the leaflets or whatever. Like there, there's a sense that there, it is a part of the mission, a part of our faith, um, to have to go to that extra trouble. Um, on the other hand, you know, once I started at PETA and everything was just so extraordinarily well run and there was not, like, there was no time wasted on process. Um, things just got done. They got done well. They got done quickly. Um, as somebody who is a very type A personality, um, I uh, appreciated and thrived um, on and in that. I, I, uh, I really liked that change. And so 
you you did eventually leave PETA. And was that just you were looking for the next adventure or Farm Sanctuary really spoke to you? Like, what was that kind of decision-making process about going specifically to Farm Sanctuary? What was that like? Well, I have been buddies with Gene Bauer, the founder and president of Farm Sanctuary, um, since I started at PETA in 1996. And we met at an animal rights conference in Washington, D.C., and just really hit it off. Um, Gene is one of my favorite people um, on the planet. He's just the nicest guy you will ever meet. And kind of an icon in animal rights, but absolutely, you know, one of the cool things about animal rights, I think, is that all of the icons in animal rights are really down to earth, lovely, friendly people. I was about to, you know, sort of distinguish Gene in that way, but so is Peter Singer, so is Tom Reagan, so is Ingrid Newkirk. Um, but um, anyway, I really hit it off with Gene. We've been, we've been close, close friends for 20 years now. And, um, he and the executive director at the time um, of Farm Sanctuary invited me to present to Farm Sanctuary's board in 2009 or 2010 about um, what I thought Farm Sanctuary should be doing with regard to campaigns. And uh, I put together a proposal and I went um, and spoke to the board. And at that point, Gene uh, and Alan um, came to me, Alan Kornberg, the ED at the time, um, came to me and said, we love your vision. You should come to Farm Sanctuary and do it. And they courted me uh, to leave PETA and take this new role. And farm animals is where my heart is. And at PETA, I was doing kind of everything and felt that there isn't a better organization for doing what I wanted to do with regard to educating the world about who farm animals are, making the case that there's no difference between harm to a chicken and harm to a cat, between harm to a pig and harm to a dog. And farm sanctuary is the personification of farm animals as having interests. Um, and, uh, so I ended up deciding that, uh, that I wanted to run the policy and litigation and regulatory work at Farm Sanctuary, which I, I did and really enjoyed for five years. And so what did that look like? Because I think when people think of Farm Sanctuary, I think of my sister, who is not vegan, nor is she vegetarian, but she loves all of farm sanctuary. She constantly is sending me videos from farm sanctuary constantly. And uh, so I think that's the public face of what farm sanctuary is, but it sounds like you were doing more of the behind the scenes type work. So what is, what did that mean? Well, there wasn't really anything behind the scenes. It was, uh, it was different from the sanctuary work. Um, so I was working with the Humane Society of the United States and the ASPCA and other organizations to pass state legislation focused on getting rid of confinement systems to beat back state legislation aimed at criminalizing undercover investigations, working on regulatory work focused principally on the Humane Slaughter Act and the Poultry Products Inspection Act. So writing and filing regulatory petitions 
to improve and change uh, federal oversight of those two laws uh, to make them better for farm animals during the final moments of their lives. Published a lot of opinion pieces in USA Today and the LA Times and Chicago Tribune and New York Daily News and other papers focused primarily on state legislation and regulatory oversight and then worked on with coalitions on a fair bit of both defensive and offensive litigation on behalf of farm animals. So when you think about, you know, what a director of policy does, um, I did all of that plus a fair bit of regulatory and litigation work. So I'm listening to the, the organizations that you've worked and worked with. I am hearing a lot of organizations that are kind of I'm not going to say controversial, but that people have a lot of strong feelings about. And so I'm sure that you know kind of what those criticisms and concerns are. You know, what, since you've now worked closely with these organizations, I'm thinking like Humane Society, ASPCA, PETA, all of that kind of stuff. Like what, how do you see that conversation that I think is often characterized as the abolitionist versus welfareist or whatever? You know, how do you, like perceive that conversation and you know what from your own personal knowledge like what is that all about and like where is that conversation going yeah i mean i I find that conversation to be unfortunate um and there really is sort of one side that is angry and one side that just continues to do the good work of helping animals while dodging, you know, attacks both from the, from animal agriculture. If you read Feedstuffs magazine or any of the poultry or pork or other industry journals, the organization that gets the most attacks is the Humane Society of the United States because that is the organization that is far and away the most effective at improving life for farm animals. So it strikes me as the height of irony and also deeply unfortunate that anybody in the animal protection community um, would also, you know, would be in any way um, dismissive or disparaging um, of the group that is doing you know, the most good. And also really quite bizarre that those same people who are um, unhappy about some of HSUS's campaigns are similarly unhappy about the campaigns of PETA, which whatever you want to say about PETA, they are a hardcore animal rights group And everybody there is in it for the right reasons. Everybody there is fighting for animal rights and doing so, you know, all, everybody at PETA could be making a lot more money and be leading a much more comfortable life. Um, and, you know, from those two sorts of, um, evaluative standards, they're, they're sacrificing 
and PETA is a, a joyous place to work. So, you know, they're not sacrificing. They lead full and excellent lives. But um, that anybody would cast any sort of doubt or aspersions on PETA's motivation um, or the people at PETA's motivation, I find really unfortunate. Um, I don't like the welfare and um, abolitionist labels. You know, I was called a welfareist when I was at PETA. Um, because I supported improvements to farm animal welfare. But it seems to me anti-animal rights to oppose improvements for farm animals. I think it indicates a lack of empathy, because if you were a chicken in a cage or a pig in a crate, you would absolutely want to be out of that cage or out of that crate. And... To cast, you know, to, to suggest that getting out of a cage or a crate um, is not a significant improvement uh, strikes me as a, a real lack of capacity for empathy for the animals involved. And to oppose efforts to get those animals out of those crates, I think, is just anti-animal rights. Then why do you think people feel that way? You know, it, it, that is that is definitely something that exists, that kind of like this incremental, incremental changes, cage free, that kind of stuff. It, it's not enough. And therefore, we shouldn't be putting effort into it. Like if 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 we're all kind of on the same page as vegans, at, that animals have rights and should not suffer, then like in your experience, like where does that impulse come from to to fight against these, you know, the, like, quote, welfareist well, I think changes. Well, I think for a lot of people, it comes from lack of empathy. I think for a lot of people, it comes from the human desire to see things in black and white. It's definitely a lot easier to scream, not bigger cages, but empty cages. And just to be clear, there's nobody who is working on welfare reforms, who is suggesting that people who work exclusively on promoting veganism or other straight abolitionist campaigns, there's nobody who is disparaging that. There's nobody who is suggesting that the folks who are doing straight vegan advocacy should be doing something else. Um, it's the, the aspersions are coming only from the other side. And uh, I think it's a lack of empathy for the animals involved. And I think it's an intellectual laziness that um, takes comfort in simplistic sloganeering. And there are certainly people um, for whom I have a lot of respect um, and for whom I think that critique is not entirely accurate. Um but I still think that they're, you know, they're falling victim to bad arguments. And I still think that the only way somebody can argue against getting hens out of cages and pigs out of crates and chicken slaughter that goes from excruciating to painless, like to argue against that, uh, I don't think there's any way to see it other than a lack of empathy for the animals involved and an inability to uh, think about 
animals as having capacities to suffer similar to human beings. Which is incredibly confusing to me, right? Because anybody who would argue that that those kinds of changes aren't, un- well, I mean, they're not enough, but they are at least improvements. You know, anybody who would argue that would ostensibly be would definitely understand that animals have the capacity and don't deserve to suffer. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a sort of uh, intellectualization. It, it takes, it takes philosophical arguments to, it basically prioritizes sort of uh, intellectualism over a clear eyed view of what's actually happening and what we can do to help. But uh, the idea that, that some of these folks would actually argue against groups lessening suffering for animals just strikes me as you know, remarkable um, and remarkably unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's, it is, uh, the more I get involved in the vegan community, whatever we can, it's not one community, but you know what I mean. And and the more that I pay attention to this, the the more complicated it all seems to become. It's not as clear and simple to me as we're all just working in our own ways toward alleviating suffering in the world. But it's that there's all of these other pieces that are involved and, and that that causes these what feels like significant rifts within a group of people who should kind of all be on the same page about suffering in general in the world and, and what animal suffering symbolizes for greater worldwide suffering. Yeah. And I think uh, I, I resonate with everything that you just said with one sort of tweak. And that is, you know, just, just to note again, that, only one side is screaming at the other side. The other side is just doing its very good work. Yeah, that's again, like I'm still new enough to this that I'm, I'm still like putting all these pieces together, but certainly in my, through my observations, that's what I'm seeing too, that, that there's a lot of vitriol coming from a particular understanding of how, vegan activism is supposed to work and that vitriol is not a two-way street. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely been my experience. So now you are at the Good Food Institute, which I am like super excited to talk to you about. Um, what What is the Good Food Institute? Like, what are you guys doing? How did it start? Tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, everything would take an awfully long time, but... Uh, the Good Food Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and I encourage people to find out all about it and sign up for our email list and follow us on social media. Our website is just gfi.org, so G for good, F for food, and I for institute.org. And the Good Food Institute is using markets and food technology to transform away from animal agriculture and toward plant-based and clean meat 
dairy, eggs, and other animal products. And when I refer to clean meat um, and other clean products, I'm talking about products that are grown in culture without all of the filth, without the antibiotics, without the uh, Campylobacter and Salmonella and Listeria and other things that uh, plague animal-based versions. So the Good Food Institute is, is, was formed in a recognition that for most people, they, dining decisions are based on three factors. They're based on taste, price, and convenience. And so the goal of GFI is to compete on the basis of those three factors by making plant-based and cultured alternatives to animal products um, more convenient, delicious, and cost-competitive. That's the focus. And how are you doing that? Actually, before I ask you that question, I did want to say that you you hit me right in my public health heart when you listed both antibiotics and foodborne illness as two of the major problems with animal agriculture. Those are significant motivators for me um, based on my background. And I would just like, my heart went a little aflutter when you mentioned those. It's so nice to hear. Oh, well, that's awesome. And thank you. Um, so GFI has four program areas. Uh, program area one is focused on markedly increasing the pipeline of entrepreneurs, food scientists, plant biologists, synthetic biologists, tissue engineers, uh, people with the expertise necessary to create the best possible plant-based and cultured alternatives to animal-based meat, dairy, eggs, and so on. Um, so if somebody might have been you know, planning to do chemicals as a synthetic biologist, educating them both about the amount of good they can do and how well they can do personally by, instead of going into chemicals, going into food. Similarly, you know, a food scientist might have been planning to design the next, you know, red dye number 246 or whatever, um, educating them about the amount of good they can do in the world and how well they can do for themselves by either starting or joining a plant-based meat company. Um, the second program area is helping the startups that exist to be as su successful as possible. So we have an entrepreneur in residence who does company mentoring. We have a couple of scientists who are putting together battle plans to figure out what um, has not been done yet and needs to be done what the obstacles are to getting clean meat uh, to commercialization. So figuring out what the hurdles are and figuring out who the scientists are to help us clear those hurdles. Uh, we have a policy director who's focused on creating a more level playing field for plant-based alternatives and al also figuring out the path to regulatory approval and oversight for clean meat and clean um, other products, getting those products to regulatory approval. Um, that's category two. Category three, um, our director of corporate engagement is focused on reaching out to the top 100 chain restaurants 
as well as chain grocery stores and food service operations, both to improve the quantity and also the quality and the promotion of plant-based alternatives. That one is focused just on plant-based because that's what is currently available. And we've done an analysis of the top 100 restaurant chains and determined that more than half of them do not currently have a plant-based entree available. So we'll be reaching out to the best and helping them to promote their plant-based alternatives and reaching out to the worst to encourage them to offer plant-based entrees. Similarly, with grocery stores, we would like to see the uh, plant-based options more. Most grocery stores now have them, but you oftentimes have to go to a special section. And you know, the goal isn't to have these things in competition with one another. The goal is to have these things in competition with animal products. So we'll be working on, on getting better promotion. And then our fourth program area is pretty high level, and it's focused on reaching out to corporations and entities that purport to be interested in or are interested in sustainability, climate change, global health issues, um, and working with them and working with scientists uh, to clear some of the hurdles that I identified earlier um, with regard to the commercial pathway forward for um, cultured alternatives to animal products. So, for example, the Gates Foundation, the National Science Foundation, um, the Agricultural Research Service, all of these places that are funding research aimed at dealing with sustainability issues or global health issues um, or climate change issues, educating them um, and then putting proposals in front of them to advance research and development for alternatives to animal agriculture because alternatives to animal agriculture are a big part of the solution to climate change, the solution to sustainability, the solution to some of these global health issues as well. Similarly, reaching out to corporations and encouraging them to put R&D money into these you know, alternatives to animal agriculture as a part of their sustainability plans. So um, that is the four program areas and all of them are focused on using, you know, food technology and markets uh, to displace animal agriculture um, and to replace it with plant-based and clean cultured alternatives. So it sounds like they are. They, you're working more on the systemic level of making changes in the way that that companies do their business. And therefore, the way that consumers can um, have access to products that would make following a plant-based vegan diet a lot easier. And, and yes. it, not just easier in terms of access, but in terms of cost and taste as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the goal is basically to take ethics off the table and to create situations in which everybody has options that are better for their health, better for the climate, better for the global poor, better for animals, but they don't even have to think about those things because the alternatives are convenient, delicious, and either equally priced or cheaper. And so the default choice is the choice that 
you know, is better in all of these other ways. And it's, it's really a recognition that 96% of people eat fast food. You know, half of people eat fast food on a weekly basis. Like the, the decision that the factors that people consider when they're deciding what to eat, you know, health plays some role. But if you look at what people eat, it doesn't play you know, nearly as big a role um, as convenience, taste, and price. So we are single-mindedly focused at competing with animal agriculture and achieving all of these really good ends for sustainability, the climate, global health, animals, achieving these really good ends, uh, but, but doing it by you know, all of the various forms of outreach I just described, um, which end up in people just having these choices as their default choices. In public health, there's the the kind of mantra of making the healthy choice the easy choice. And, you know, so that that's things like adding tax to soda so that soda is so expensive that people don't want to buy it anymore or putting only healthy snacks in vending machines so there's not Cheetos and Oreos and whatever in there. Um, and it sounds like that's kind of the same philosophy that the Good Food Institute is following of like making the decision kind of the no-brainer to just go with the plant-based food because it's just as easy to get, it's as expensive or less expensive, and it's satisfying and tastes good. That's, yeah, no, that is that is precisely um, how we're thinking about, how we're thinking about what our mission is and how we go about it. And it is, it's certainly the case that we talk about the ethical issues when we're talking with governments or foundations. I mean, 170-something governments just last month signed the Paris Agreement, which says that they will keep climate change to under 2 degrees Celsius by 2050. And yet climate scientists say that that is literally, you know, it is a scientific impossibility unless governments deal with animal agriculture. Well, there are a couple of ways they can do that. They can go with education, um, which may work to some degree, um, or they can put some of their significant agricultural research budgets into creating these plant-based and clean alternatives that are delicious and cost competitive. Seems pretty clear that the second option will work for sure. Uh, the first option may or may not work. You know, at, uh, they should definitely do the second option. They should be putting R&D resources into creating these products. Um, and maybe complement that with the first option. And that's a, a key, you know, a key focus for the Good Food Institute. So one of the, the pillars of the Good Food Institute is the cultured animal products, you know, cultured meat, cultured dairy, cultured egg. And at the same time, there is this huge anti-GMO movement and, and cultured animal products, as far as I understand, are not necessarily GMO, related to GMO, but that same kind of, I could see a future or a present where that same sentiment that that is so strong within the anti-GMO movement would also be applied to any kind of cultured food movement. Have you encountered anything along those lines? And, And if you have, like, what's that been like for the Institute? We have we haven't encountered that yet, um, and I will be surprised if we do. At least with clean meat, 
and uh, and we're calling it clean meat rather than cultured meat uh, because rather than describing the process, we think describing the product makes more sense. And that also, in addition to, we d- we did some surveys and uh, clean is about ten percent more supported pe- by people than cultured, but clean also describes what you're getting um, and. It describes, you know, by contrast, what you're not getting, the filthy meat that's coming out of you know, modern animal-based farms. But um, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that once people have two options, and one of the options involves total transparency, right? I mean, people right now, they eat meat despite how it's produced. People are not eating meat because of how it's produced, and most people don't want to think about things like how the animals are treated or the inefficiencies or the climate change or any of that. And the places where meat is produced are actually passing laws to make it illegal to see what's happening. So you've got that, you know, filthy meat from places that are locked up like Fort Knox that are trying to keep people out on the one hand, and then you've got clean meat, no antibiotics, no bacteria, and complete transparency. You know, you can actually, you know, it's basically created in meat fermenters. That's what it's going to look like. Um, and anybody who wants to go and see it can see it. You know, we envision a day when you've got your, you know, brew pub, and right there next to the fermenter for beer is a fermenter for meat. And that's, uh, that is a very real likelihood for how clean meat is going to reach commercialization. So I think the people who are worried about GMOs are, are partially worried about the opaqueness of the process. You know, clean meat is going to be the opposite of that. And I expect the people who are, and the people who are worried about GMOs generally are also worried about the harms of factory farms. Like this addresses the same problems that they have been addressing. So uh, my hope and expectation is that there will be, you know, real receptivity from the anti-GMO community um, to clean meat technologies, which solve a lot of the problems they're concerned about. Yeah, that it seems like we have there's a lot going on in the way that we think about food, particularly at this moment in in time. And so. I, I mean, I think that you, I think that the insight that part of the problem for people who do not support GMOs, um, is, is a transparency issue. And it is that, that kind of like big corporation, you know, Monsanto gets called in all the time. They're a giant corporation with a lot of secrets and that scares people. And so if cultured meat can be more transparent, you're right. Maybe that would be helpful and it would help alleviate a lot of the problems that 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 community raises which you know are not they are not necessarily concerns that should be just pushed aside um which is yeah that's it's very cool i love the idea of having um like a a meat fermenter right there like next to the in the brewery like right next to the beer that's that's a cool image yeah, I mean, I think I think we'll have both, just like there are both with beer. So there will probably be some, you know, some big ones and some small ones. But 
whether it's uh, big or small, you know, they will happily welcome people to come and see the process. It will be transparent. It will be clean. It will be significantly more healthy, um, significantly more sustainable, just really better in, uh, in every conceivable way. And how far do you think we are from that? Uh, the most recent, um, the most recent prediction I've heard is, uh, three to five years from commercialization of, of clean meat that is pretty expensive, probably, um, on the order of, of higher end animal products, um, and 10 years from being cost competitive. But, uh, but obviously, I mean, that's a, a rough prediction. And I think for the, for the acellular products, the dairy, the eggs, the collagen, um, we're looking at a year or two before these products are on the shelves. And I'm not sure um, how quickly they're going to reach cost competitiveness, but I would imagine, you know, well under a decade. Wow, that's soon. <laughs> that's, that's pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely exciting. And, uh, I mean, we know how to do it. Like, we don't, we don't have scientific questions. We have engineering questions. So we know how to do it. It's, uh, it's really a matter of just, uh, scaling up and doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, my last question for you is once, once this stuff becomes on the market or, or just even accessible just to you, are you, are you going to eat it? I'm very excited to eat it, Tegan. Yeah. I, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, on, on the one hand, we ought, it's not for vegetarians and vegans. If people right. are already vegetarian or vegan, um, you know, they're sort of, uh, they're set with regard to the problems it's solving. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but I'm just so excited about the prospects for the clean products to displace the animal products and do so much good in the world. Um, that I am, I am enthusiastic about partaking. Yeah. It that would, that would be such a bizarre day, I'm sure, taking a bite of a burger or eating some scrambled eggs <laughs> would probably be so mind blowing on so many levels. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, yeah. No, I agree. It's, it's going to be crazy, but it's going to be, uh, crazy wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, Thank you, Bruce, for talking with me. This has been really wonderful. I'm obviously very enthusiastic about this whole cultured meat situation. Um, and yeah, and thank you for sharing your story and, and providing all of these insights into kind of just like the whole world of activism and, and vegan food. Thanks, Tegan. Thanks for, thanks for having me on and thanks for doing your podcast and thanks for your support. It was, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed our time together. Yes, me too. Thank you. Tegan Goes Vegan is found at TeganGoesVegan.com, on Twitter at TeganGoesVegan, on Pinterest at TeganGoesVegan. The show is produced by Tegan and Nathan Karuna, with music by Amanda D'Amato. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a rating or a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show more easily. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back soon with more great vegan conversations. 